talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Hello everybody and welcome to a sort of interstitial episode of more like the worst wing. Um, <laughs> Stu and Dave here. I'm going to be doing kind of the bulk of talking here because Dave's recovering his voice from being slightly sick. But yeah, I had an idea that was I, I spent some words writing up in kind of the wake of the seating of the new Congress class that actually I have a lot of thoughts about how our discussion of the West Wing is being sort of directly formed and impacted by the media's treatment of the freshman congresswoman from New York 14, everyone's favorite, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Oh. <laughs> so um, really the larger context that my thoughts were shaped up in is this: she's been doing a lot of work almost, I mean, not deliberately, other than the fact that this is part of her political philosophy, to sort of pierce this veil that right. characterizes just, rank and just file. Just by accurately thought. describing what has happened to her since coming to Congress, <laughs> essentially. Well, yeah, just by she, saying, like, okay, so I went to this meeting and these corporate dudes <laughs> talked at me for a while and that was weird. Yeah, it's because, like, what, why are they, why are there corporate, what does this have to do with why, governing? Why is this in, like, the intro, like, <laughs> orientation meeting? Yeah, so, like, this is for, you know, for us, I'm sure, especially most of our listeners, this is kind of bandwagging because God knows every other motherfucking podcast is doing episodes oh, are about they? AOC these days. We've seen article after article after article. I actually don't fo- follow many podcasts <laughs> except for They're not ours. important. They're yes. not important is the, is the thing. So um, I've been trying to draw this parallel and wrote up a few thoughts about it that we're kind of going to work through now. It's very the fundamental thing that's happening with her is is sort of like it's very related to my critical consumption of popular media these days and generally and then just frankly every time we sit and watch an episode and record our show about the west wing this phenomenon is sort of like it's absurdly at the forefront of my brain mm-hmm. so um I was down in D.C. for the swearing-in. Um, I'm going to tell a brief story that sort of segues into the media control um, and messaging sort of thing here. Um, my wife used to work for an organization that was a very early supporter of a Democratic candidate for Congress this time around, and she eventually ended up winning for Georgia's 6th Congressional District. <laughs> oh, wow. The one that was not <laughs> originally fam- won by John one. Ossoff. <laughs> Famously lost uh, consol- data- consolidator of data centers. <laughs> yes. The most expensive congressional race in history on behalf of federally consolidated data centers. Oh, my so, God. So um, my wife and I became friends with this woman, Lucy McBath, through work. It turns out, hey, she ran and got elected on a pretty standard, you know, sort of center-left Democratic platform. They won't be consolidating any federal data centers under her watch, but basically oh, no. her... <laughs> My one issue. <laughs> basically her, um, like the passion behind her campaign was driven by the fact that um, some racist uh, murdered her 17-year-old son for playing his music too loud in Jesus his car. Christ. Jesus Christ. So <laughs> it, it sounds absurd on its face when you say it, when you relate the facts of that story. And what's strange is that this happened in 2012 and the tangential relation to the topic that I want to talk about today of like piercing a bubble or lifting a veil is because the reason 
that you may not have heard about this episode or this this issue, this kid's name, Jordan Davis, um, is that like it happened in mid-November, right before Thanksgiving. And then three weeks after this one 17-year-old black high schooler in Jacksonville, which I think we can all acknowledge is the worst fucking large city in America. Oh, yes. Like the worst ever? As, as a Floridian, <laughs> I, as someone with some expertise in this arena. So he was killed by some white boomer piece of shit, you know, in Jacksonville. Three weeks after that happened, 26 white school children were killed by an equally white millennial piece of shit in this little town called Sandy Hook. Oh, you might have heard of that. Yes, perhaps you've heard those words connected in that context before. So our regular listeners can probably connect those dots. Yeah, it's it's funny how all the gun violence and incidents on the periphery of the big, notable, rememberable ones like that kind of fall by the wayside in the popular memory. Yep, because, you know, we're not trying to equivocate or make a comparison of two. Frankly, I mean, they're equally horrific when people are murdered for, for no reason. Um, but yeah, again, everyone who I'm sure is listening as well aware of the way that the wind blows in the mass media and therefore like what would have been just an absolute uh, something, you know, that tied very well into issues in the media at the time just got blown out by the the mass murder that occurred in Sandy Hook. So our friend turned her pain over losing her son into a successful and relatively authentic run for Congress. Anyway, we can move past talking about her and us because this isn't really about that. Um, you know, I live in New York City. I did some canvassing for AOC, both in her primary run against Joe Crowley and then in the general, even though at that point it was a pretty foregone conclusion that in one of the bluest districts in the country she was going to win. Um, and to sort of put a disclaimer on this uh, through my interaction with the DSA, I have moved further and further away from believing that electoralism is uh, particularly the way for my political philosophy. Um, I've come to appreciate mutual aid, direct action, community and solidarity building much more so um, while I make sense of my place in this city and in this world as a political animal. Um, But all that said, Electoralism may come later in my political philosophy, but AOC's activity so far is frankly quite revolutionary in that it represents a very early, um, I described it as nascent, stage of creating a potential bridge to a more equal consideration of electoralism in the United States as a valid path forward for what could be a truly socialist government set of policies. Anyway, so when I initially <laughs> shitposted on Twitter about this, I was struggling to put it in the words because I said, like, it's there's a dissonance that's her presence and her authority that's going to, it's a forcing of a reconciliation between that authority and what people believe is the truth. It's just going to fucking boil some brains around the country. And it's a clumsy way to describe it, but it was only after... I, I came back and I was thinking about when we were going to record next. And I was thinking about how the West Wing is a television show that we've concerned ourselves with like quite some time mm-hmm. now. And we have these conversations quite regularly. 
is that the show itself is almost an avatar for one side of a very uniquely American experience of living a conscious and authoritatively enforced lie day to day wherein your political beliefs are reinforced regardless of whether the truth and the reality in which you live intersects with those beliefs or is affected by those beliefs. So I'm going to cut the recording off right here and then just say that I'd like to establish a couple of points that I'll get around in my thesis, but I need to take a break and a sip of beer real quick. <laughs> All right. So first off, um, just the idea that the American political discourse, especially now in the age of just pervasive mass media and infinite uh, information asymmetry or symmetry. Twitter. You can just Twitter. say Twitter. <laughs> I said Twitter, Facebook. Um, the, the discourse perverts some basic terms and words that in a global context tend to mean certain things academically. Like I, I don't like to talk about absolutes, but there mm-hmm. are terms and, and words in the in a, a political science sphere that have meanings that the American, both the Overton window and the way with which we conduct ourselves, they end up being perverted into the service of what is generally just a capitalist, neoliberal, white, heterosexual, supremacist framework, wherein all of a sudden these words don't mean right what they should. Right. So the most prominent example to me and obvious to a lot of, I'm sure our listeners, to a lot of people, is the word liberal. Right. Um, in the United States, when 95% of people say liberal, they mean leftist. Or, yeah. yeah, they mean you know, Democrat. Or, <laughs> yes, or their idea of what a leftist or a progressive right. looks like. Yeah. So this has been sketched out for and, and talked about. You do for, get you a know. few of the weird alt-right guys who claim they're classic liberals and whatnot, <laughs> who understand yes. the more ac- accurate meaning of it, uh, and, and, but ironically are are <laughs> are using it the wrong way in a weird way. <laughs> so. And it, it happens, and it's been talked about for generations. I mean, in, in context of this month, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote about it, and actually scholars of his advocacy that I've been reading through um, this time around with uh, the BSA, they talk about this thing because politics of language obviously is a huge subject, but um, I'm not an academic in that sphere, but it's not hard to grasp the propaganda value of using the power that you wield as the American, you know, political Overton window and the machine does to subtly or overtly twist the language that you're using in furtherance of the accumulation of said power, of reinforcing your already entrenched power or political agenda. So the second concept that sort of runs afoul of this is that AOC speaks in plain language when she talks, which is all at once extremely relatable and yet completely foreign because the technocratic vocabulary that we've just kind of become inured to um, over the years that's just gushes out of the mouths of a Democratic or to a lesser extent Republican because they're usually less cowardly, um, like out of a politician over the last 40 years that's been like it's been become the norm it's de rigueur at this point mm-hmm. and i say 
usually for these days when I say 40 years, it just basically means that like there was a big old shift in political economy on the heels of the 1970s that ushered in the modern conservative movement. And in plain language, that means when Ronald Reagan became president, shit went south in the country with the Southern strategy. Yeah. In, yeah. <laughs> Understatement. <laughs> so the third idea here is that until very, very recently, this information asymmetry, which is a concept that I think we've actually discussed on previous episodes of uh, The Worst Wing, mm-hmm. was a very real thing. It, it was a tangible fact. Um, and there's an author named Tim Wu, and he touches on this in a cool book that I've read called The Master Switch that's informed my perspective on this stuff. And briefly, it's that the major consequence of the rise of the internet, and especially social media, and the democratization of those platforms, is that everyone can know everything. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, whether that air quotes everything that a given person finds out is true or not is sort of beside the point because mm-hmm. there's you either have the concept of the master switch is you that get, if you, you have, get the information you seek essentially. and then if you have control over how that information you're seeking is spread then the democratization also to a lesser to a lesser degree does not matter anymore mm-hmm. because there are still people in control of it sure so all that is sort of you know can can be Put by the wayside because the fun, the final piece of the puzzle as we remove ourselves from rhetoric and perception and all this stuff is just it's material reality. Uh, like I would the, call it the, authenticity, but essentially the same thing. Yes. <laughs> yes. The the lived experience and of, of having been a normal person. <laughs> yes, and and having endure. I, I say I use the word endured life in yes. this country. Over the last four decades, which I think is a... Having uh, had to struggle at some point. Yes. And not not be- having a silver spoon existence. <laughs> because even, I mean, regardless of, I guess, that aspect of your life, the country at large has just been continuously being dismantled in service of the capital class mm-hmm. for the last four decades. Like, it's always been being dismantled in service of the capital class. But that that we can leave behind for the time being. Since Reagan became president, big old shit going down. Mm-hmm. So, and hiding behind the averages and statistics that, like, oh, endless prosperity, everybody's getting wealthier. It, basically, the truth is that here in 2019 now, People are sicker, broker, and frankly, dumber than ever in this country. I mean, from a public health perspective, there's been some token shifts towards using medians. For example, you've heard the term, you know, like median household income as opposed to average mm-hmm. household income. Just is it's a again a very academic attempt to provide a counter narrative, um, and is used in social sciences in good faith. But the problem with using statistics in that way is that it doesn't provide a particularly rosy message right? Um, to that would be used or leveraged to encourage people to say, vote for you. Right. So it often just gets buried just sort of in the process of doing the political business that people do. Like even if it's not necessarily in service of direct wealth transfer from the poor to the rich. So if you're in control of that aforementioned information asymmetry, you can utilize it to perpetuate that cheery, everything's okay, status quo prosperity message. Or at worst, 
the eventual media conglomerates that come around, they'll just do it for you. You don't even need to tell them to spread that message because they'll just take it up and do it because it generates clicks. And here's where we say Chomsky was right. <laughs> so this is I'm, when, when I talk about this, I'm not trying to um, say that like things are getting shitty because things are always getting shitty. There's always talented and sometimes wildly successful activist movements fighting against you know, the the ad- relentless advance of fascism in this country. And I don't want to fucking, like, diminish that struggle because there have been people who have fought and, frankly, died for a more equitable society mm-hmm. in the last 40 years. Like, it, let's... I, I'm not intending to kind of minimize their struggle. But the fact remains that in the last 10 or so years a lot of various pressures have emerged within the structure of the American cultural hegemony that are at once becoming unbearable in scale and unignorable slash unbearable in scope mm-hmm. as well at this point. So now we come around to AOC. So enter a politician who has a national uh, voice who is not beholden to the status quo that we've just described in any way except for her representation of her constituents and her personal experience of the material deprivation that's now commonplace within American society, right? Mm -hmm. So her politics are informed by her life. It's it's, it's miraculously simple. (laughs) Right. It's just, it's shocking that it, it, you know, it took this long to get a congressperson who, you know, I mean, I'm not writing off every other congressperson as just being like a hoity-toity elite, but the vast majority of them certainly are like basically groomed for politics. Whereas, you know, she is has a working class, normal background. Yeah, and I think the and actually let's yeah we can we can take this derail here. Um, I've noticed that sort of the uh, the phenomenon of the local legislator has been very much so like resurgent ascendant in the last couple of years, thanks in part to, you know, Twitter and Facebook. The internet. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And it's great because there is a there is a niche, there's a space for it, people who can actually engage their local communities. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and really speak to the people who live there and their material needs. Yes, and the examples I used are uh, like Danica Rome and Lee Carter in mm-hmm. Virginia, who mm-hmm. are, I mean, Emily Sirota in Colorado is another mm-hmm. one. They are our, they are local, they are state level legislators who have national profiles, mm-hmm. who are paid attention to on a national, um, like a on the conversation level, if you will, but who also like put it out there to their constituents. It's like. I'm going to be at the community center for, you know, it's it's going to be bingo night mm-hmm. or whatever. Or I'm going to be doing some work on our roads. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there is a space for that now that is being amplified on the Internet. Um, and so I feel the root of that plain language that we mentioned that AOC uses is her personal experience as it should be. Um, I'm, I'm cribbing a lot of these thoughts from a Twitter poster whose handle is at pretty bad lefty when in fact he's actually pretty he or she or 
they are a pretty good lefty in my view. So good job. So the reaction of the the pundit class, the punditocracy, and sort of the established oligarchy in the halls the of the federal government has <laughs> just been truly spectacular. Like the reaction to AOC's interviews, because there is this formula where these interviews go, where it's expected to make ratings out of asking potentially hot button mm-hmm. questions that to 80% of the country are questions of reality, mm-hmm. not of political danger, if you will. And AOC answers them with blunt and honest thoughts about how to make regular people's lives better. Mm-hmm. Um, it's with, been with it's none just, of the typical political double speak that America has exactly. come to expect over the past few decades as what we understand of our idea of a politician being groomed and saying double speaky words and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so like it, it happens on multiple levels. Like we saw Anderson Cooper's brain like short out when yeah. AOC called Trump, a ra- Donald Trump, a racist. It's like, uh, can you just yeah. say that? <laughs> And then, like, this whole spat with Steve Scalise on Twitter, whose dick and balls were shot off by a gunman. Nobody, like, nobody knows how to respond, even respond to or engage, much less control or muzzle a woman who just honestly and earnestly embraces and believes in the power of her station to improve the lives of her constituents. Um, You know... All of these political operators from the interviewers to the actual representatives have just been steeped in that doublespeak that you mentioned, just evasive equivocation Mm -hmm. that, frankly, rank and file Democrats have been using for for fucking decades. It's become their basic lingua franca. Exactly. And it's, it's something that is both expected of them and almost demanded of them by the moneyed interests that are their donor class. Um, So frankly, they end up using it as a weapon against their constituents because, you know, in order to maintain the entrenched power structure, they have to learn how to talk around and about these issues without not, without doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. So not only that, the way that AOC speaks is, in, again, common, simple language that her voters can understand, that we can all understand and engage with. Mm-hmm. And there's all been all this poor, like, pearl clutching that eventually boils down to, like, oh, my she's, God, not the poor folks. She's saying honest thing, or, or that, yes, even even <laughs> like, when you strip it down to its, yeah. Like, holy shit, right. that one, one of them poors might talk to me on the street. Right, you know, the, the fear of the town hall, effectively. <laughs> so... It also, like, this, the phenomenon, it puts the lie to the very, very Democratic Party idea of politics as a game between two sides, Mm -hmm. each of which must be, much, each of which must be considered and sort of like, yes, Yes. and allowed to exist in a balance. And and the the heart of, (laughs) of, you know, getting anything done is finding a nice sweet compromise our favorite thing mm, just love that creamy delicious center <laughs> yes like so frankly like you don't compromise on someone or frank these days tens of millions of someone's having access to it or like having a doctor right 
you don't it's, compromise it's becoming, with Nazis because yeah. they're just going to kill you. Right. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, enough of America is starting to wake up to like, hey, why don't we have this stuff? You know, like, <laughs> hey, I have the internet. I can talk to someone from the UK about their health care and they'll tell me what's going on. You know, like, and meanwhile, I'm over here with God knows how many bills and... And, and garbage. Yeah. You know, just like utter garbage at every level yeah. of public services. So what the at the federal level when these people are talking about this stuff your decisions will have consequences regardless of how you talk about them mm -hmm. that extend beyond chalking up that point in your team's column mm -hmm. because frankly if the government remains shut down for another 22 days I'm recording this on January 10th mm -hmm. snap checks aren't going to go out mm -hmm. on February 1st and people are going to begin to starve yeah um, and, so, you know, the country is what three missed meals away from anarchy is how the saying goes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, God, God forbid. I do not want to see an America where people don't have access to food. <laughs> I couldn't food, even food riots are not going to be pretty like you've seen this way. This country riots. riots over sports. Imagine like <laughs> yeah. when you're actually hungry. Yep. Yeah. So, and, and at this point, like the, party, the Democratic Party at large, has ceded so much tangible ground from being a point in the distant past, a force for substantive structural institutions that acted in service of broad social equality goals and wellness for the population. So the party itself has sort of collectively taken the art of this linguistic dodge and equivocation, you know, denying the premise of the question that's a C.J. Craig thing, mm -hmm. means testing, opportunity offering, and they've just taken it to this level of intellectual and moral supremacy that it is imbued with this value that the, oh, the, the, the petty squabbles of the, the regular folk, the hoi polloi, are beneath us because we're talking about the real actual issues mm -hmm. up here. And then essentially ceding any capacity or willingness to pursue those ideals. Um, and frankly, it works in service of their team's score, but definitely not in service of their voters' well-being, mm -hmm. who are basically daily struggling to right. avoid being ground into a human paste. Yeah, the average American is poor and their teeth hurt. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that's that's and, what and the that's, average American cares about in the next election. And 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 every missed root canal adds a couple thousand to of the a basis point to some <laughs> yeah. hedge fund. Yeah, like their ROI. And so, at best, that means that in the last God knows how many forty years, the Democratic Party can generally just uh, in practice be characterized with some just gross institutional incompetence and at worst they're actively abetting the inculcation of fascist tendencies right as a, into as a malice or incompetence yeah and it and it at this point it is the the population just generally is is now very vulnerable and so more likely to embrace whatever will provide them with the promise of, again, getting their next meal, having their teeth fixed, you know, having their kids be safe in school, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So the reason that democratic policy initiatives take, for example, everybody's favorite, the ACA, 
have largely plummeted into like this self-reinforcing spiral of arcane, twisted, complex formulas and exceptions is because the firms who propose and craft the bills, which are by and large just private for-profit enterprises these days, Mm -hmm. uh, like they act in service of that capital class. And these measures that they propose to rein that class in are being defeated out the gate. So your bog standard American liberal who wails about like Trump's bone spurs and and yearns for a return of the Obama administration, Mm -hmm. they've been deliberately conditioned to accept the language of moral and intellectual combat because very little of the material outcomes have been present, much less prevalent in democratic policy initiatives. So the victory of the democratic side in this squabble really just becomes the only precondition for a large number of, you know, your white, your wealthy liberals putting their full-throated support and defense behind your establishment Democrat at this point, because that person has mastered telling the policy, but has completely abandoned doing any of the policy. Mm -hmm. So we can sort of see where this train of thought is going. Um, AOC's approach to these issues is single-handedly like ramming a spike into the legacy of what political thought passes for canon these days, and that the West Wing did an extremely thorough job of inculcating, of giving the image of, you know, providing the image of what exactly this looks like. These are these are what politicians are. These are your elites. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they propagated that image just and just blew it right into the brains of an entire, probably fifteen-year-long generation of just of regular-ass viewers, much less the future professional political operatives who now do the reinforcing of this system. So, generally, the sort of language that AOC largely eschews when she articulates and frames her legislative priorities is the only reason that Aaron Sorkin had a fucking job mm-hmm. for like 15 years. Because he was real good at writing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he he fully took up that language and then shed it back out onto... In a, you know, in a, a poetic, play. operatic, you know, musical way, you know, that yeah, is, exactly. that is you know, as it. we've discussed many times, extremely captivating television when it's at its best. Yeah. Now, and again, I, I, I have note here, I said to be perfectly fair and somewhat condescending to the writers, it is only half their fault because this hegemony exists for a reason. Right. And they were pulling no- from, from the real world. Yeah, and nobody's immune to propaganda. So, like, even if you are aware of it happening to you, propaganda still works. So I, I feel like particularly their, their unique experience of most likely coming into political awareness sometime in the early 80s almost assuredly left like an indelible stamp on the, the West Wing's writing staff's broken brains. Of like, course. you know, you've got you've got neoliberalism wins, free enterprise, like hooray, we beat the commies. Right. Go corporations. Yeah, these were Gen X, you know, Gen X slash late boomers, you know. Yeah. And so that that being said and acknowledged, it shouldn't really excuse the role that the West Wing, which is, let's be clear, a carefully tailored, focused group, 
deliberately manipulated, network disseminated television program. Fictional program. Fictional television program. I feel like it's important we get that in there. So it, it played an ex- uh, extremely, you know, an outsized role in the reinforcement and proliferation of that end of history post-Soviet world order. Mm-hmm. Which in, again, material reality was largely characterized by a similar small percentage of Americans enriching themselves at the expense of the global south. You know, the show takes great care to portray the inner workings of governments and political intrigue in a very, very narrow tunnel. You don't see what happens when a flagship bill gets signed or defeated. Mm -hmm. You hardly ever hear of a bill that does anything more than a some wonkish technocratic extension of the status quo. Mm -hmm. The conflicts are internal to the characters we see, which, you know, again, will be perfectly fair here. To a degree, it's very understandable because it's a dramatic device. Yeah, it's essentially a workplace sitcom. Their workplace is just the White House. Yep. And in that way, it's internal to the administration, internal to the politico class. It never extends beyond that. So in a very uh, kind of in a, in a strong uh, enforcement of this perspective, it implies to the viewer that that's what politics is. It's isolated battles between a class of people who are set at a remove from the rest of us. And the results and outcomes of those battles also remain isolated in the framework of the show. And of course, that is the exact fucking opposite of how legislative priorities and institutions enforced by the violence reserved to the state work out on the general population. And then you go all out to a nice fancy dinner afterwards, after you're done. Yes, and that, and even that is just, oh, it's just like, this is what you do. Right. <laughs> so the language that the West Wing uses obviously is, is soaring and rhetorical in nature, even at times to the detriment of the narrative flow of a given story, like we've seen times where Sam just goes off on a tangent for no reason right? whatsoever. But it's also, I mean, it's it's very tailored because it's accompanied, and I've talked about this in the past, but it's accompanied by an equally uplifting swell of, like, patriotic strings. Mm-hmm. And, like, you'll, you'll hear the music come flowing in, mm-hmm. and there'll be a lot of emotion in the characters. And so... In that way, the viewers encouraged to aspire to the ideal that is being proposed, mm-hmm. that there's this grand bargain in defense of an America, which is already great. And frankly, at this point in history, we've heard that shit before. Like, and I put a lot of words about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> it's not it's not materially relevant. Like it is a it is a fantasy in sort of almost the original context of the word. In real life, people don't read I don't know, for example, means testing as helpful mm-hmm. because they aren't they aren't being helped. They right. have to expend energy to consider it. Yeah, uh, there's a non-zero number of people who keep falling into these gaps where you make just enough money to not get assistance, but not enough money to fucking live on, you know? And you and the the added burden of considering that situation almost makes the the quote opportunity of having that available to you worse than it just being flat out denied Mm -hmm. to you. Like just not having it available. You further have to struggle to slot your struggles into 
this framework of bizarro, hyper-optimized uh, programs that may or may not be available to you. Like, I can barely even complete the task of my job and life day to day, you know, and I'm very lucky to draw mm-hmm. a paycheck that leaves a lot of those material concerns taken care of. So if you, like, we, um, even... I, I read about, sorry I, to interrupt, but... Uh, this concept of shadow work that capitalism gives us, like, you know, when you're on hold with your insurance company for two hours because you're submitting a claim because you had a fender bender, you know, when you're on hold with your bank for three hours because there was a, a transaction mess up or something, you know, the, all this shadow work that w- that gets assigned to us by, the, by just these institutions, you know, inefficiencies that that get unloaded to to the to the low man on the totem pole you know and and all of this just serves to even further exhaust the working class and we were talking earlier about how um like the the inefficiency of the system itself creates more burdens right for the people that are being burdened already right so yeah that's the worst thing of all is just like if you just gave poor people more money, they'd spend it all and it would all go back to you at like a multiplier effect. Like this is what fucking economics is. Like you're self-defeating like out the gate again. Like, uh... so like all of these proposals to, to help people that we hear about on the West wing. And frankly, we hear about these days in reality ends up being gated off by this sort of weird, um, priest class exclusive set of formulae and convoluted hoops mm-hmm. that that when you that boil it down to and if you no one exactly yes. because what is the only purpose it's actually serving is to mask the true intention of we don't of actually want to do anything it. because the donor class would prefer it that way they, yep. they like things the way they are you make it available to people but impossible to use mm-hmm. because that's what's profitable right so just kind of to, to wrap up a little bit, there's a real socialist tradition present in American political thought, although at this juncture, it's largely been deliberately memory hold and obscured by sort of like just time going on, but also by administrations who would prefer that the people ignore the brighter and better ideas. I mean, we can just say because like of McCarthyism in the fifties and a very deliberate attempt of trying to equivalent socialism with communism with Russia, who was our great enemy and, and all of that, you know? Yep. Because as soon as there was a convenient sort of enemy to point people Mm -hmm. at, then it all becomes about that. What is an empire? What is an empire without an enemy? Nothing. (laughs) Exactly. To petty infighting and squabbles. And so, like, in a, in a sort of platitudinous way, AOC, and I, I want to emphasize this point, AOC's representation, deliberate and um, authentic representation of the thoughts and needs of her constituency in the Bronx and Queens here, represents a resurgence of actual, of what actual governance in service of the many should look like. Yes. Um, all the all the actual high-minded ideals we aspire to. This is this to me is the great sort of frustration and yet hope I have for America is that somewhere in there is the idealized version of us. You know, the one that 
really does stand for freedom and liberty and all that crap that we claim to stand for. Um, you know, that the Budweiser ads make us feel, you know, <laughs> and well, it's, it's, well, damn it. I was going somewhere. Uh, <laughs> well, go ahead. It, it, if, if people, if people enjoyed deploying these terms, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of, to kind of walk it back to our, the beginning of this discussion, if we are able to mold language, no doubt our language also molds us. Mm-hmm. So, I I also would like to believe that somewhere, to your point, somewhere inside this society, there exists that that tradition in a real form mm-hmm. because everybody knows the language mm-hmm. to describe it, and yet somehow nobody bothers to do anything right. about it. Yeah. So this idea of of actually serving your country by by doing what what she's and the other good, you know, representatives in Congress are doing of actually representing your fellow person, your, your local, you know, constituents, your, you know, your people, you know? Well, and I think in terms of kind of resting back control of that uh, language, when AOC does this, she's portraying the, a quote unquote capital D, democratic face Mm -hmm. on the news and when i don't know your broke brain suburban des moines white wealthy liberal sees that they are conditioned to respond favorably right but if they think kind of if they if they think academically about what she's saying that causes some severe dissonance with their belief that their democratic representatives have long been acting in their interests with the tangible reality that they have not. Right. And you see that belief, you see that reaction play out in anger where they tell her like, "Hey, you're you you're talking too much before, you know, <laughs> you don't, you know, buy, bide your time." <laughs> you know, yeah, like, you take a seat. Right. You let the adults yeah, do the talking. You're you're a junior representative. You need to wait like 20 years before you can even think about talking. <laughs> And, and all of that is is played out time and again in the West Wing. And so we have these mm-hmm. major, you know, I guess at this point kind of online type people that cling so very tightly and almost reactionarily to the West Wing delusion that they almost begin acting in concert with the party. And they're just at that point, they're just fully embracing self-harm. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when you support those policies and politics, you are actively detrimental to your own well-being. Right. So my conclusion at the end of this was that basically, like, that is what the new reactionary politics looks like. And it should, by all rights, bury the current incarnation of the Democratic Party for good and all. Or alternatively, I guess, forcing a schism a and realignment. Yeah. Yeah. That's been sort of you know. It's always been my per- my personal theory is that we're we're leaning towards a split where we have sort of a lefty dem split off from a corporate centrist dem that is like still very pro equality and and whatnot to separate itself from the GOP, but leans right economically. Yeah, and and does things like cheer for Gina Haspel taking over the CIA, right? Exactly, or cheer for cheer for the the. Black woman prosecutor who's going to run for president. Right. So, yeah, and regardless of how that works out, it it really is. It it starts with with AOC and frankly, and started with Bernie mm-hmm. to a lesser extent, 
just it was not even a democrat <laughs> yeah so i'm sorry we can't talk about him. he's not a democrat <laughs> yeah. um, but returning to the idea that this this is fundamental to representative democracy is that you should be able to relate that that's that's the only reason you should have a job right. as a politician is to bridge that gap right. between the policy and your constituents right. like and, and it, constituents meaning the common person not Yes. Uh, your rich donors of your district and no one else. Yes. You know, and if you can't do that, or in the vanishingly small like set of situations here where like your constituents are just straight up all assholes, shout outs to Orange County, shout sure. outs to sure. Palm Beach. Um, like, if you can't do that, then you get the fuck out. Like, the, the, the professional political class being promoted and preserved by the donor class is just an abomination to the thought of i guess the popular good Mm -hmm. really but that's way far afield at this point so that's it for me on this subject um did you have anything else you wanted to break in we went really long no i got my thoughts in uh i enjoyed this discussion i thought it was really good uh, I enjoyed your thoughts as well. I like them when in the, in the notes, and I like them in your reading of them. Uh, well, thanks, Dave. Yeah. And that's why I'm, I'm glad I had a chance to propose that we do this on our podcast. Yes. Because, you know, this is fun. I like having uh, you as an interlocutor, if you will. <laughs> uh, that's, a ni- that's a nice way of saying co- co-host, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so, yeah, this was a fun little discussion. We'll be back uh, soon-ish at some point, once my voice fully heals, to tackle uh, the next actual episode of The West Wing. Um, but, uh, as always, you can reach out in the thread, drop us a comment, shoot us an email. Uh, you, that puerile email address is theworstwing69 <laughs> at gmail.com. Uh, nice. Puerile. Puerile. <laughs> I, I mean, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this was great. And we'll talk to you guys we'll next time. We'll catch you another time. Bye-bye. And I'll send Bye. all the money you asked for But don't ask me to come on along So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal 